Hello and welcome to the Scary Stuff Podcast episode on Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. This episode is going up on February the 28th, 2022. We recorded the audio several weeks ago, and in the intervening time, there's been an awful lot going on in the world and an awful lot of awful going on in the world. So in lieu of our usual pre-credit intro, we wanted to mention one item in particular, which would be the current events regarding transgender youth in Texas. All three of us here at the Scary Stuff Podcast believe trans rights are human rights, and if you feel the same, then there are several ways to donate and show your support. There's the organization, the Transgender Education Network of Texas, who can be found at transtexas.org. So that's T-R-A-N-S-T-E-X-A-S dot O-R-G. So you can visit that website if you want to donate to them directly. There is a Twitter thread from the George A. Romero Foundation with various places to donate, and we'll be retweeting that the day this episode goes up. And we wanted to call attention to one item in particular, which would be from Tenebris Press. Uh, As of this recording, they are currently accepting submissions for an anthology titled Your Body is Not Your Body, a new weird horror anthology. Now, submissions for that anthology will close on March the 3rd, 2022, so that's just going to be a few days after this episode goes up. And they have requested only trans and gender nonconforming creators to submit stories for that anthology. However, if you would like to support that anthology another way, the Tenebrous Press Kofi page currently has a fund going which will help pay the creators who are submitting towards that anthology. So that's something you can donate to. So you can visit Tenebrous Press's website, which would be tenebrouspress.com, T-E-N-E-B-R-O-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot C-O-M. Go there, go to their blog page, and there's a post there about the submissions, and it has a link to the donations page and more details on the anthology as a whole. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this episode on Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. We hope some people find it to be a pleasant distraction if they need one in dark times. And as always, thank you so much for listening. And welcome to a very special episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dillinger and joined by co-host Nick Leamy. Hey everybody, how you doing? And so we're going to be doing this episode a little bit differently this time around. So uh, Jacob couldn't make it for the first portion of this recording for scheduling reasons. Ah, who needs him? <laughs> <laughs> we found out what movie we're doing. He said, you're doing Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker? Uh, 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 meetings. Um, so... <laughs> But we're not letting him off that easy. He doesn't get to win. So we're going to be talking to Jake later in the episode. (laughs) But first off, we're going to bring in our very special guest, who's someone I've been so looking forward to having on the pod. He is the author of comics such as Mountainhead from IDW, Hotel from AWA, the comic Sync, and recently kickstarted a one-shot dig spinning out of that book. And currently, my introduction to his work, which is the comic Crimson Cage, which is very much wrestling based, which is also from AWA, AWA in this case being artists, writers and artisans, not American Wrestling Association. So I'm very proud to introduce John Lees. Yay! Yay. I'm your Jacob now. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks for having me on, guys. And thanks for that really nice introduction. Pleasure. Oh, no, thank you so much for doing this. As soon as I saw Crimson Cage, uh, and I need a shout out real quick, I discovered your work because uh, when Crimson Cage was first announced, it was retweeted by V. 
Vidayala, who's one of my favorite writers working today. Anyone who's not reading New Mutants and Static, please go read them. They're fantastic I'm books. really talented, yeah. Yeah, or go back and read The Wilds or Submerged from Vault. Um, you yourself have something coming up for Vault in, in sometime here in 2022. Yeah. Which is why I'm wearing my... <laughs> I almost wore my... Uh, I know you're a Brian Danielson fan, so I almost wore my American Dragon shirt, but instead I wore my Vault uh, t-shirt for this. I mean, it's an audio podcast. You can see it wherever you want. Like, you oh, know, yeah. I'm, I'm wearing my Spider-Man costume today. <laughs> I, if people who listen to our pod know that I'm all about props yeah, on our audio-only podcast <laughs> that no one aside from our co-host sees. I mean, I'm very much like a podcast, though. I think it's very much should be audio-only. There should be no such thing as visual aids in a podcast like this. <laughs> Excellent. That's just me, though. I'm just something of an absolutist in that sense of traditionally. <laughs> yeah, speaking of the Chucky doll floating through, I highly encourage anyone who... Uh, <laughs> Who's a fan of the Child's Play franchise? Check out a podcast called Friends Till the End, oh. which we'll link to. But uh, I've actually been looking for a good Chucky podcast, so I'll make sure that out. You know, like that meme always goes around on Twitter where they say, like, you know, name a topic that you could talk about, like, nonstop for like five minutes. You know, <laughs> you know, or you would be killed or something. Mine would probably be like the Chucky franchise from like nineteen eighty eight through to like present day. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's your favorite of the the big franchises. Um, I'd say so. I kind of feel like saying Chucky's your favorite slasher is a bit like saying like you know, Gamera's your favorite like kaiju. But Gamera is my favorite kaiju. So yeah, it's Chucky. hell yeah, he's <laughs> my favorite. That's pretty apt comparison because Gamera seems to be slowly getting more appreciation as well. Because everyone's like, well, there was that one trilogy of movies they did in like the early two thousands that was really good. So no, yeah, no, they're, 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 that's my main experience of Gamera. But yeah, you had uh, tweeted us shortly after Crimson Cage came out and you know, said, hey, if you wanted to come on and talk about the comic. And as soon as I found out you were a fan of the movie we're about to talk about today, which is a movie I am very much a fan of, I said, I'm absolutely asking you on when we get to Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. So I am so delighted this day has come. Oh, yeah, no. I'm a big fan of this movie. Um, I'm something of obsessive. Like, being in the UK and being, like, a child in the 90s, like, I'm very much obsessed with the whole period of history, like, the video nasty moral panic. And it's became something of a personal checklist of mine. I want to watch all 72 films the Department of Public Prosecutions banned as being obscene. Hell yeah! <laughs> and this was one of them, so like that's, that's where I first discovered it. And I was doing my big watch through them all, and this is one of the best ones. It's a real class AFA. I really enjoyed it. Now, it's always nice to find other people discovering it and enjoying it too. Yeah, so that was that was one of the things I was really excited to talk to you about, because I, I didn't know that until... I, I didn't discover this movie till recently. In a moment, we'll get into why we're doing this particular <laughs> film, because it's about as left-field a reason as you can possibly get. Well, Valentine's Day is just around the corner, so... It yeah. is tied to it's that. It's very yes. romantic. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a companion piece to a Valentine's Day episode we have now. <laughs> but yeah, so I... I you know, I don't know a ton about the I, I know the the overall video nasty era and I know a handful of the titles that were part of it. But I was surprised to learn that this was one of them. Yeah, it recently was been meaning to look more into it after seeing the movie Censor that came out last year, which you know plays a, a bit on that period of film history. So, yeah, that's it, of, of all the films. It, it's interesting that this movie ended up on that list. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating in terms of. Obviously, like, when you go into it, it wasn't exactly the best and brightest that were, like, you know, pushing through this censorship and getting films taken off, like, the shelves. And so a lot of times, like, I, I obviously have no way of proving this because, like, the reasons for, like, things getting censored has largely been, like, 
you know, sort of redacted and kept confidential. But yep. I've there's very much a wide sort of spread conspiracy theory that a lot of films were maybe just banned for having like similar titles to other films that have been banned. Like after like Cannibal Ferox and Cannibal Holocaust, whatever, like anything mm. to be cannibal in it got like banned. Yep. Tob Hooper famously managed to avoid the whole thing for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was one of the most like unavailable and never actually got banned and put in the banned list, but that's because Tob Hooper like avoided the whole thing by taking it out of circulation and never submitting it for rating. Mm-hmm. So that, there's this rumour that like people were so mad that Tob Hooper escaped through that loophole that every other film he ever made just got like banned, like just just out of again. Hence like largely respectable like studio movies like the Funhouse getting put in it as well. And yes, there's all kinds of like weird stories into it. Like in Butcher Baker, you watch that and like it's obviously deals with some like quite sleazy subject matter, but it's largely a kind of classy studio affair with like name actors and mm-hmm. it's not particularly gory. No. It's not got that much sexual content. So if anything, you know, either it's just been a case of like mistaken identity, like it's been caught up in like the mix of a similar name thing, or it could be because this was the time of a conservative government and the height of its powers, it could be some of the transgressive ideas which we'll talk about as it goes on. Maybe just annoyed them and they wanted to kind of keep it suppressed. I have to admit, it, it, you're absolutely right. It wasn't super gory and it wasn't super over the top. What? But this might be one of the more uncomfortable films I've seen yeah. in a long oh, time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's actually like what I'm truly. I'll let you guys do the rundown in the movie first. But like one scene that I legit, I'm not lying. There's one scene that totally got me the first time I saw it, and then I forgot about it. And the second time I saw it, it got me again. So I think I, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> But I'm not sure if you guys want to describe what this movie's about first for any listeners before we dive into it. (laughs) Yeah, we'll start to get into it. So, uh, first thing, uh, folks who listen to the podcast will know we're we're a full spoilers podcast, so we're going to spoil this movie. There is stuff to spoil. So, and if you don't want it spoiled, pause it, go on Shudder and watch it now, then come back. Precisely. Yep, perfect. It's now on Shudder, and if you see it on Shudder and like it, by all means, go get the Code Red Blu-ray. I think it is Code Red who has it. Yeah, the Blu-ray for this is very good. It has a really great commentary track by two of the screenwriters and some really fun interviews we'll probably touch on as we go. But yes, so go check it out. We're going to tell you to go see it. So check it out first. So explain why we're doing this. <laughs> so for Valentine's Day, we did the movie After Midnight by Jeremy Gardner and Christian Stella. Another good movie. Excellent. Yeah, and when we, we checked it out initially which was back in late 2020, it wasn't available on Shutter yet because that was within a few, like six months of it first coming out. So it was still on VOD. So Jake, our host, bought it on Amazon Instant Video. So he bought it to own. And Jake uses, for most of his streaming on his television, he uses a fire stick. And there is an error when he pulls up after midnight on his fire, and we have screenshots of this that we could supply. <laughs> At the top, it says after midnight, and there's the, the iconic image in the background from that movie of you know, Jeremy Gardner on the couch at night. And then the text reads, Billy's about to graduate, but Aunt Cheryl wants him all to herself in this twisted cult gym. <laughs> and then it says, directors, William Asher. And it's like, that's incorrect, because I know very much that that movie's Jeremy Gardner and Christian Stella. Starring Jimmy McNichol, Susan Terrell. So what? He's definitely not. In- <laughs> so there is an error that appears to be unique to the fire stick, where the after midnight header... <laughs> Shows you the <laughs> cast and summary for Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. <laughs> and it's been a running joke of ours for a while that it was like, oh, this is Butcher Baker, but we'll have to do that someday. Uh, last year, 
the three of us got together for the first time in a while and watched Halloween Kills together. And at the time, we were thumbing through Jake's Amazon account. And we saw the After Midnight thing and talked about Butcher Baker. So that night when I went home, I said, you know what? I haven't seen it. I'm going to go ahead and watch it. So I watched Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker basically entirely cold, aside from that Amazon description that I read. And the basic stages of watching this movie were uh, three minutes in. It was, ah, this is going to be one of those movies that has a really great opening scene, and then it's just downhill. And then Susan Terrell shows up and said, nope, we're good. This is going to (laughs) be, this is going to be entertaining no matter what. And then about 30 minutes in, you hit, wait a minute, this movie is shockingly interesting in terms of (laughs) thematically and what it's trying to do. And then by the time I got to the 90 minute mark, I went into our group chat and said, we're doing this at some point. We have to talk about this movie. It definitely takes a hell of a turn right around that 30 minute mark. Like, woo! Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think there's like several turns over the course of it. We are just like every time you get yes. level, like, you know, okay, nothing I know where this movie's going. Oh, no, I don't know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> Formulaic is not the word for this film. <laughs> I mean, like, you start off right away, like, I think pre credits possibly. With that horrific car crash sequence where yep. um, our main character, like, um, what's his name again, Billy Lynch, um, his parents get killed in this like, horrific car accident with their brakes give away. And the funny thing is, right, I love that sequence, right, because first off, like, you know, you see, like, the bit where they go into the back of the logging mm-hmm. truck. Is that Final Destination 2 having put people off? Yeah! The trucks enough? Yep. And then, then yep. like, you know, this <laughs> happens, and that big lump of timber goes through and, like, just cleaves through the dad. And then, uh, the funny thing you're watching this, right, and you're seeing the mum and she's desperately trying to grab the steering wheel. And then first, like, she swerves to avoid the car and she goes into a ditch. She thinks, well, that's not so bad. Maybe she could survive that. And then the car continues <laughs> off the ditch into, like, an embankment. And you go, well, that's a bit worse. The windows are smashed now, but she could still be alive. And then the embankment gives way to a cliff and she falls off a cliff and lands in the water. And like, well, that's, that could be some pretty horrific injuries, but theoretically she could still be alive. And then the car blows up and you're like, oh, no, 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 she's <laughs> it was it was a hundred percent the simpsons it's still good it's still good yeah. <laughs> it's funny i was watching that whole sequence of, of the car careening just down the hill i was like this is a really good car crash it's not quite my favorite my favorite is still probably angel face the robert mitchum gene simmons movie which was an auto premature movie because that one has an amazing car careening off a cliff sequence and then you get that shot of the car coming to a stop and this slow shot of a photograph floating out of it. And you actually have the thought. It was like, oh, thank God that's over. Kaboom! <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed so hard. <laughs> I said, oh, this is going to be a ride. And it's like Groundhog Day. Like, you, know, like, you know, that's not so bad. And then boom. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to do like some research into how many times a person in a horror film dies by a log to the face in a car because I swear there's probably a fair amount of it before Final Destination 2 because that became so iconic no one's like well we can't do that it's done <laughs> the descent had it and then an amazing playback to it as well the dream sequence but yeah I kind of, I'm sure there's a bunch of others as well it's just something so specific you know but uh, yeah like you know so obviously from there like you know you have this like, crazy incredible opening and then you have like our main character, Billy, like, who's all set off to go off to college in his basketball scholarship, but his aunt Cheryl, um, Susan Terrell, is looking after him, um, kind of objects to this. Oh, yeah. the, and it seems the thought of, like, her precious Billy leaving starts this chain of events, which becomes increasingly unhinged as the film goes on. 
She gets creepy. <laughs> she is so unsettling Scene throughout one. the entire film. <laughs> oh my one. god. Uh, but the thing is, what I think makes that character so well done is that it's not, yes, like she's like creepy from the start, but it's not like not to 100. She gets steadily crazier as it goes on, which is what makes it work so well. And like, mm-hmm. it's funny, this is a really weird comparison, like, you know, that probably no one else in the history of mankind has made. But when I was first watching this movie, I was put in mind of like, Fences with Denzel Washington <laughs> because because when you watch that, like Denzel Washington is essentially doing the same thing that Susan Terrell was doing, which is say like thwarting the child's ambitions because like you think they're not good enough. Whereas like you know, no, you're not chasing your dreams and going in a scholarship which are good enough to get. You're going to get a job in town yeah. and you're going to like you know do this and that. Obviously, Denzel Washington isn't doing it because he wants to fuck his son. Unlike like you know, like, like, unlike, <laughs> Susan, <laughs> unlike, unlike Susan Terrell, like you know, who has these like <laughs> deeply creepy urges towards a nephew. Oh, um, God. But. Yeah, like, you know, but then obviously, like, that's working. So it starts off in this kind of human, relatable, like, that's something that maybe people deal with in terms of, like, parents, like, that they know that will guilt their children into not wanting to pursue this or that. But then it takes that kind of nugget of truth and obviously takes it to these grand, crazy places, you know, which is like what all, all, all the good horror does, which is mm-hmm. starting somewhere, you know, real and go dark and crazy with it. Oh, it goes dark and crazy. I, I, oh, I yeah. have to admit, this film threw me for a loop on so many levels. For one, uh, real quick, I'd like to mention that the 80s horror movie definition of crazy has always been fascinating to me because it's always over the top. Yeah. Like, her level of crazy by the end of this reminded me a lot of the movie American Gothic because, like, just crazy is crazy. <laughs> it's, it's just it's just uncontained, you know, I'm just going to kill everything in my path and do whatever I want and take what it's there's no way to define it yeah. into any sort of modern day concept of insanity. <laughs> and the way Susan Terrell like controls her body, no prosthetics oh. or even really heavy makeup, but the way she carries herself is like she turns into an animal or something. It's just uh, yeah, she's an absolute force of nature in this movie. Oh, yes. Although, funny enough, like. Even as frightening as Susan Terrell is, I don't even see her as like the main villain in the movie. You know, oh no! You know, like, is she not? Yeah, you know, that, you know, yeah. Butcher Baker like it's like you know an OG A cab movie. One hundred percent, a hundred percent. But like you know, the main villain in the movie being like Bo Svensson, psychotically homophobic cop who essentially like because after like um. And Cheryl, like, you know, in her declining sanity, like, tries to bring over the handyman, like, you know, so she can seduce him. And then Emily turns her down. She kills him in a mad homicidal rage. And then, like, out of nothing but whole cloth, like, this kind of, like, um, <laughs> what's the, is the Detective Channard, his name is? Yeah, Detective, uh, no, Detective uh, Carlson. 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 Um, comes in, I'm thinking of Dr. Channard from Hellraiser 2. <laughs> Detective Carlson <laughs> com- comes into the scene and, like, you know, just looks around and goes, right, okay, I'm saying that uh, your son actually killed him because he's a secret gay, because I hate gays. <laughs> and then, like, no matter what evidence is presented to him, other cops going, look, there's all these missing people going back how many years, all these 
dodgy medical records with like Aunt Cheryl. I think she's you know he's like and he's just going. You know what? No, I, I like this theory that it's the gay guy that did it instead. So like I'm just going to go with that. So keep it to yourself. And in fact, you should go take some leave because you're suggesting to follow the evidence. Like you know, like, you know, but, you know, and it made me think how many actual police investigations have gone this way in history. Well, like, you know, but for me, I think that's like a, one of the most fascinating aspects of this movie because this is made mm-hmm. what 1981. I want to say 1980. 81. So this is what less than five years removed from like Dirty Harry, yeah. But you know, which had this scene, you know, where like you know Clint Eastwood is like you know pure like you know when he goes into the club and he pure like attacks the gay guys, he's like stay away from me, you creeps. And he's presented as like the hero, the heroic badass and stuff. In this movie, you have the homophobe who is unambiguously in the wrong. Yep. And other people around them are all like you're disgusting, like you know that's shameful. Yep. And what I really liked yep. as well is even like Billy. When he is told, like, oh, you know, your gym teacher's gay, you know, he was in a relationship with this guy who was he, dead. He's like, still the guy you know, he goes and, to. And, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He instantly, go, you, know, you know, he refuses to disavow him. Like, you know, he refuses yep. to, like, you know, he instantly goes and talks to him. And, like, you know, and I, I think that was, that's, like, some decade ahead of its time before Philadelphia. Some reason I keep on bringing up Denzel Washington, but that's, like, a decade before <laughs> Philadelphia presenting, like, the journey towards accepting a gay person. It's this massive, like, movie-long narrative. But he just instantly just accepts him because he's his teacher and he trusts him. And the teacher's like not stereotypical or anything like that. Like, you know, he's like, you know, just like he's the most sympathetic guy in the movie. Yep. And I think it's actually really weirdly progressive for like a 1981 exploitation. Massively so for its time. Very much. Yeah. You know, we usually do this recurring thing on the pod where we have, here's four teaser images for the, what to expect from our conversation. It's going to be four Denzel Washington movies. <laughs> <laughs> from different, from different movies. Movie they're going to Fallen before we're finished. You know? yes! Yes! <laughs> I was just thinking, I was saying, yeah, we'll have to get the Fallen at some point, which I do want to do. I love point. Fallen so much. So yeah, we, there's a lot to touch on thematically and plot-wise in this film. So, But we mentioned... John, you mentioned up front early kind of just how overall unconventional this film is. And that even goes as far back as just kind of the crew involved. So, Nick, uh, do you want to hit up the production rundown real quick? And Absolutely. Talk about some of the folks involved. I, I look forward to you filling in the holes on this one. <laughs> it's in bits and pieces, but it's there's there's some fascinating stuff here. As we said, this is Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, which really is hard to apply to this film as the title goes <laughs> it was released in 1981 well funny enough there's actually three titles it went yes. by Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker it went by Night Warning and it also went by Evil Protégé which is like the third one it went by really? that yeah. one I because I have how many do do they cover in the commentary I have six. Oh, oh I don't know those three so you're more than me yeah so in the commentary because the, there's two of the screenwriters are on there so they mentioned the script was written as Mother's Dead then during filming, it was Mama's Boy. Then it was Scared to Death. Then it was Thrilled to Death. Then it was Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, which was a suggestion by producer Richard Crothers, which everyone agreed was like, oh, yeah, that's the best one. And then the distributor said, well, we're going to call it Night Warning. And everyone was like, what the hell? And then, <laughs> so I hadn't heard Evil Protégé. That one's new. That's actually the IMDb title it has, the Evil Protégé. But... I actually quite like Mother's Dead because it works in terms of like, you know, the premise of the movie as it starts and then also works as like the last line in the movie. Yes. (laughs) It is a hard movie to name though, considering how much it changes and evolves and goes in different directions. So I I respect the difficulty with the naming. (laughs) (laughs) So this was directed by William Asher, Mm -hmm. who uh, might be best known for his movie Fireball 500. 
as well as being a director of multiple episodes of Bewitched and the new Temperatures Rising show. Yeah, so let's let's talk about William Asher's uh, productivity real quick. William Asher's filmography is absolutely fascinating. You mentioned he worked on Bewitched. He didn't just work on Bewitched. There are 254 episodes of Bewitched. He directed 131. Whoo, he That's owns 51 it. 51% of Bewitched. And he also worked on I Love Lucy, where he did 110 episodes out of 179, which is 61% of wow. it. So oh, wow. he also did, what was it, uh, Beach Party? And of the yep. series of, I think it was American International's Beach Films, which there were seven, he did five of them, uh, including Beach Blanket Bingo, which is the title I'm most familiar with. I try and watch other films by the directors of the movies we talk about on here, especially previous ones. Because that's where you get gems like we just did the first four Nightmare on Elm Street films and we got to watch Rennie Harlan's debut movie, Born American, which is one of the most <laughs> fascinating cinematic viewing experiences I've ever had. And we're getting ready to talk about Stephen Hopkins' debut film when we get to Dream Child. But I watched one movie of William Asher and it's a movie called Johnny Cool from 1963, which I think is the same year Bewitch premiered, which is appropriate because the movie has Elizabeth Montgomery in it. Nice. But if anyone is a fan of early 60s noir, I would say check out Johnny Cool. I don't think it is great, but it's interesting. And based on my loose knowledge of stuff from around the time, shockingly brutal. And it's basically a parade of fascinating actors. Like the lead is Henry Silva, but there's Telly Savalas is in it. Sammy Davis Jr. is in it. There's a young Joe Turkle who's in it. Hell of a cast. And yeah, just kind of a shockingly dark film for its time. So anyone who's really curious about noir. Give Johnny Cole a, a look. I always think it's interesting when you see, like, you know, especially that, like, 1980s peak slasher period, you'll see some movies, right, that are directed by people who aren't really horror directors, like, you know, mm-hmm. and it brings, like, a different energy to it, like, you know, like, Terror Train was directed by, like, what, Roger Spottiswood, yep. like, who did, like, a lot of, like, gentle dramas and stuff, and he doesn't use, like, the slasher language, essentially, there's this kind of, like, soft focus, you know, and then, like, you have this, obviously, you know, where William Ashton's done a lot of, like, TV comedy and sitcoms and stuff, yep. so he brings, like, a different, like, vibe to the story, you know, because obviously, like, now, anytime you do a slasher, by the very nature of it, the canons became so entrenched that it's impossible to make a slash that's not somehow in conversation with itself, you know. But it's interesting to, like, you know, see, like, movies from this time where people were bringing a whole different filmmaking language to it and a different energy. Yeah, it's fascinating, too. Particularly, what they, they ask on the commentary, they ask the writers, they're like, how'd you get William Asher involved in this to begin with, you know, with his history and comedy? And they mention, it's like, well, he recognized how funny the whole movie was. <laughs> you know, this whole pre- <laughs> As he said, he recognized... The inherent comedy and and kind of with this camp gothic approach that they take I to mean, it. It's just there's so many things in this movie that no other film would do. Like for me, the thing that just always fascinates me is the extended role of as a Marchie, like the old lady. The oh old yes, pal, kind of like, the next door neighbor. Like, like, yes. No other slasher movie would have that character in that role, wondering <laughs> about the house and looking about. You know, I love her. I think she's great. Oh it, yeah, it's so much fun. So we'll talk more about some of William Asher's touches as we go. But yeah, what a fascinating director for this movie. Yeah. So we've got three writers for this one. We have Steve Breimer, who only wrote this. We have Alan J. Gluckman, who worked on Ruskies, Gross Anatomy, and The Face of Fear. And also written by Boone Collins, who worked on Abducted, One and Two, The Protector, and Sleepover Nightmare. I want to see that movie. That sounds good. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I watched the trailer for it. It looks fascinating. <laughs> it's. I'll probably touch on some elements of the movie as we go. One one thing I'll mention is that you know, we're talking about kind of the progressive elements of of the movie during the commentary. I believe it's Alan J. Gluckman who's the person in question who's speaking. 
the inception of the movie was him and Boone Collins. And in Alan Glickman's case, he said, you know, well, the inception of the film kind of was I was adopted and always wondered about, you know, my birth parents and kind of started to write a script about that. And also I'm gay and I wanted to incorporate that. You know, I knew I was gay early in my life and wanted to incorporate that. And he also cites uh, Roman Polanski's film Repulsion as an influence as far as, you know, this self-contained single setting, you know, spiral into madness sort of film, you know, which is timely because we again, we just did the first four Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And that was very much a touchstone for Wes Craven as well on the first Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street. Boone Collins, who, if you look at his filmography, is decidedly pulpy uh, since he did like three abducted movies with, you know, <laughs> Dan Haggerty and, and all these, like you mentioned, Sleepover Nightmare and stuff. And apparently he worked with Alan Glickman on a TV show and the whole car wreck opening was apparently all him. He said, yeah, we'll open with this great car wreck and it'll be me. And so, and then Brimer came on and did additional script work. He was also a producer. And there's an uncredited writer on here who's named Richard Natale, who did an uncredited dialogue polish. But the reason I bring him up is there's a novelization of this and it's co-written by Richard Natale. And apparently uh-huh. I don't have a copy yet, but apparently it is, there's a lot more stuff fleshed out to it. Huh? So I, I want to pick up a copy and get I'm into sure it. I want to know what was fleshed out. <laughs> yeah. You're a little worried about that. Yeah. What additional details have be been on there, considering what we already get. But, <laughs> but yeah, so th- just a really interesting writer's lineup. There's, yeah. No, this is also edited by Ted Nicola, uh-huh. who worked on Trancers 1, Trancers 2, Taurus Trap, oh. Ghoulies, and Robot Jocks. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> hell of a lineup yes, uh, graphic for you. yes and directed i think the first four subspecies movies <laughs> yeah so he's oh, rather wow. prolific director directed terror vision so he worked for charles band a lot ted and so when i saw his name in the opening credits I, wait ted nicolau mm-hmm. and definitely knew him as a director i didn't know him as much as an editor until i looked him up for this also worth noting he was the editor on roar which is if folks don't know it it was the film that was released by the alamo draft house with uh, Tippy Hedren and her family with like 30 lions on set where basically like 60 members of the crew were mauled during the course of May. We're, we're going to do Roar on this pod at some point. Holy crap. We'll get there. But <laughs> Roar is a ride. <laughs> <laughs> and the cinematography was performed by Robbie Greenberg, who worked on Swamp Thing, oh. hey. Dr. Dracula, and Lucifer's Women. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm already annoyed that it's called Doctor Dracula, not Doctor Dr. Doctor. That was exactly the first thing I thought. I like you, you're missing a prime <laughs> opportunity here. <laughs> Music was by Bruce Langhorn, who worked on The Upstairs Neighbor, Word of Honor, and Annie's Garden. It was produced by Royal American Pictures, who worked on Only This, <laughs> and distributed <laughs> by Comworld Pictures, who also distributed The Final Terror, One Dark Night, and Brainwaves. The only person I'll add on to that is Alan Apone, uh, who's interviewed on the Blu-ray, which is why I looked him up, who did the makeup and effects work for this movie. But the reason I'm mentioning him is he's he's very prolific as a makeup person. Like, he's still working today uh, predominantly on Marvel movies, it looks like, as, as makeup work. But worth noting, he did mechanical effects on Galaxy of Terror. Ooh, and... someone almost died with those. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> And also, he's the second unit director on one movie, which was Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Zinn, which has nothing to do with Butcher Bigger Nightmare Maker. But anytime I see Metal Storm mentioned, I'm going to bring it up. So. <laughs> I, think, I think Metal Storm, The Destruction of, like, should just pick a placeholder for anybody's biography title from now on. <laughs> Hell yeah. 
<laughs> I, I would read any book that had that title. Oh yeah, that that should absolutely be a biography series. <laughs> the, yeah. the Metal Storm <laughs> series of. Uh, <laughs> that could have been an abandoned title for this movie: Metal Storm: The Destruction of Cheryl Roberts, the Susan Terrell character. <laughs> Metal Storm: The Destruction of Billy Lynch's Psychology. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to skip ahead a little bit with uh, some of the actor descriptions here and just say this film also happens to star in his first uh, starring role from Aliens, from Frailty, from Predator 2 and Weird Science. We have Bill Paxton as Eddie the Bully. I did see that. I'm like, <laughs> yep. I'm going to show that pop. It's like, is that Bill Paxton? Is that Bill Paxton? Yes, yep. Bill Holy Paxton. Bill Paxton. Baby Bill Paxton. And he almost got the Billy role, yep. uh, but they wanted someone who had a uh, more recognizable name, but they definitely enjoyed the energy of what he was bringing into it. So they kept him involved. But I know, so he plays this stereotypical kind of bully character, but he does this one thing that stood out for me and I had to mention it. At some point he's messing with Billy and Billy like decides to fight back. So he stands up and he takes his milk and he pours it over Eddie's head. Now, mm-hmm. what I don't get is Eddie just stands there and lets him finish pouring before going, that's it. <laughs> it's not just that, right? Billy stands up and lifts the milk and hesitates. Yes! And he looks at him as if, like, on you go, do it, do it, do it. And then he pours it. Like, yeah. Like, I dare you. And then like, he lets him finish. And then, like, then he... It's like, I'm sorry, bully or not, someone stands up with a glass and reaches over my head. There's there's going to be fists flying before they're done. All right? <laughs> I, d- I did like though when it's all said and done, despite like the bullying and like them hating each other. Once they got onto the basketball court, like they worked together really well and they're passing back and forth and they're doing like this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the big match <laughs> at the end, they're very much professionals about it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was very excited to see Bill Paxton in here when I first saw it. So many fun actors, and we recently did our first year in our Christmas episode. One of the movies we did was Silent Night, Deadly Night, and Britt Leach, Mister Sims from. Silent Night, Deadly Night is in here. Who's also in Weird Science. With Bill Paxton. Yep. Yeah, with Bill yep, Paxton. Yep. And The Great Outdoors, which is where I always remember him from. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's he's just going to be Mr. Sims for me at that, from here on out after seeing uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Respect. But this one we talked about recently, which was the, the, the coach in this movie, Tom Landers, is played by Steve Easton. And one of the things we talked about in our Elm Street episode was when we talked about the movie Freddy's Revenge, I was like, look, compare... The depiction of a gym coach in Freddy's Revenge to the depiction of a gym coach in Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. And it was easy for me to be reminded of Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker because, as I mentioned there, Steve Easton, who's the coach here, is in Freddy's Revenge. Yes. He's the cop. Yeah, he's, he's, he's the, the cop. cop who brings yep. the protagonist. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny. When, when I was watching Freddy's Revenge, I kept thinking, I was like, oh, man, I really want to touch on Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, you know, when we record this. And then I get to the cops and I'm like, hey, it's the coach. <laughs> he also played in uh, When a Stranger Calls and The Hidden 2. Yeah, no, I got a big solid body of work there behind him. Yeah, he uh, has a really prolific filmography, and he's very good in this, I think. Oh, he's very good. I think he's, like I say, because he doesn't play it stereotypical at all. Like, no. He plays it like, you know... I think it's really well done. Like I said, he's probably the most sympathetic character in the film. And like, yes. you know, yes. and, he, and even the fact that like, even after everything, after all this cloud, like, you know, that's over him, like having to resign his face, being threatened, being implicated in various crimes for no reason, just because like, you know, he's been exposed. Even so, when like Billy calls him and is like, you know, I've killed her, he goes to help him. Like, you know, yep. yeah. Like, yep. 
<laughs> you know, I have to say, with the level of over the top we get from like Susan Tyrell and Bo Svensson's uh, performances, Coach Landers is played so more subdued and grounded and just sympathetic, and it's it's a wonderful juxtaposition uh, with the other characters, and you you really feel for him and are rooting for him and feel him as the ally that he becomes yeah. for Billy. It's really well done. And I'm so glad that he survives because I just assumed yes. he was going to get killed, you know. Yeah, for same. Time, but, you know, you know, but yeah, the whole arc with him and and with Carlson, the detective who we touched on a little bit earlier, who's played by Bo Svensson, who's funny. We just talked about him in our Black Christmas episode because Bo Svensson was the lead in Breaking Point, which is the movie Bob Clark did immediately after Black Christmas. He's also in Kill Bill Volume Two, Inglorious Bastards, and Raising Jeffrey Dahmer. Well, and another thing he's in too, which kind of plays very much into this, is he took over the role of Walking Tall from Joe Don Baker. So he was in the sequel to Walking Tall in 75. There was a third one somewhere in the late 70s. And then there was the Walking Tall TV show, which was in 81 at the same time this movie's coming out. And this is getting into one of the such a fascinating element of this movie is when you get to this point of about a little less than a third of the way into the film where we've had our first murder, which is Cheryl Roberts uh, attacking somebody who we we come to find out is character's name is Phil Brody. He is the partner of Tom Landers, who is the the basketball coach. We find out later. So when Bo Svensson comes on the screen, he already has this built in reputation with him just from the other roles he's worked on. Where he's like, Oh oh, yeah, it's Buford Pusser from walking tall. Yeah, it's going to be the tough guy, you know. Yeah, and so it's okay. All right, it's the tough guy cop. And then he immediately has that deductive insight when he first shows up that, you know, something's amiss here. And, you know, it's like, oh, no, I don't believe, you know, this isn't how it played out. So, yeah. like, he's, he's not wrong that something's amiss, but he's just taking it a totally wrong direction. You know, it's like, and then he keeps mm-hmm. going. Like, and, and when he shows up, too, that he is such a embodiment. Like, he is. So there's already this built-in iconography with just Bo Svensson as, the, as Buford Pusser. And this movie takes it even further. Like when he shows up, his belt is, you know, the cowboy like bull belt buckle, which looks like it could be a light heavyweight title somewhere. <laughs> he he has an American flag lapel pin, which becomes a tie tack in all the subsequent scenes. But it's ever present. If he doesn't have a tie, then it's moved over to the lapel. And we'll talk about his office in his little bit. But is his office is basically half one wall is all military like certificates and military awards and whatnot. And the other half is all either cowboy iconography of, you know, two bull whips and literal bull horns and a native American ax. Imagine like a big Confederate flags, just like off screen somewhere, you know, it's like, yep. It's like colonizer personified in his yep. office. It's, yep. and not only that, his first conversation when he shows up on the scene is like, we're going to stress the, you know, the whole virile masculinity of the character, because they immediately have this dialogue exchange about vasectomies Mm -hmm. that he has with the British. So it's, it's pushed so far. Yeah. And then when he shows up and he immediately says, ah, this isn't what's going on here. And then he said, and I mean, the funny thing is, yeah, we've talked about how most relevant to the plot is a homophobe, but instantly what leads to the homophobia is that's rooted as in he's sexist as well, because he immediately says, a woman couldn't have possibly done this. How, you know, then he has to come down and tell them story. He's like the quintessential bigot. If he could be yeah. uh, like bigoted towards it, he will do so. <laughs> yeah. The one person we see him bring in is someone who's from Mexico. Yeah, so he's, he's racist as well. You know, so he's, he's racist yep. as hell. Yep. 
You know, he takes that to such a level that it's amazing to me that after all the awful attraction she has for her charge, after drugging him, after killing people left and right, after beating, you know, like his girlfriend over the head with a meat tenderizer, all these awful things that the mother does, by the end of the film, she is shadowed by the awfulness that is this detective. And he, in my mind, is clearly <laughs> the ultimate villain. Yeah, and that for me, like, clearly the screenwriters and the director knew, like, the mm-hmm. audience and what the audience would have wanted this film. Because when you're watching this movie, you think the narrative's going to be at the end. Oh, it's going to be that cop, you know, like, you know, comes in and realizes he was wrong, you know, and so, like, he, like, you know, apologizes and vindicates. But, you know, yeah. they, you know no. at this point, yeah. they realize he's, like, the real villain in this. The real yes. satisfying end of this has to be him getting killed, like, you know. Yep. So that's where they go. <laughs> It, yeah, it's so fascinating when it's like, oh, thank God we're saved at the end. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, no, but literally, like, Julie comes in and she's like, I saw all the atmosphere. She tried to kill me. She killed her. She killed him. You know, and he saved me. And he's like, no, actually, take her away. I'm going to shoot him because I don't like him. <laughs> it's yep. like, you know, it's, you yep. know, that's actually the point where he's confronted by the facts. And he makes the choice to become like a murderer. You know, then he gets killed himself. You know, arguably that might be the one defining characteristic that makes him the true evil is that the the mother is clearly insane and out of control and maybe not even capable of making choices to some degrees, whereas he is just consciously an asshole. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's something I noticed on the second watch. Now, this could have just been a consequence of editing like it where it was written differently and scenes were lost. So I don't know that this was entirely intentional, but he is the only character on the second watch where the movie visualizes something that is fantasy where it's not actually correct because there is the sequence where he's talking oh, to Billy yeah. and he says, now here's what I think happened. And he's like, I think you came home and it depicts this. It, yeah. We actually see it now for all that the movie is structured around Cheryl Roberts, the Susan Terrell character and yeah, her descent and madness. Delusions and, yeah. Yeah. You would think in a lot of films for as far as it pushes it, like we would get a fantasy sequence of like where she sees something or how, you know, her distorted reality or her fantasizing about her relationship with who were initially presented with is her nephew, find out not her nephew, but it doesn't do that. We get, there are first person POV shots for, her, but everything that as far as text in the film with her, is factual it's it's mm-hmm. you know she's very much in the center of it. it the only time we get something where the movie is presenting something that is not true is with the police officer and with carlson and so it's an interesting thing too which is you know externally she has the more overt dissent in this but in, in that depiction it was like no but the movie is telling you by far it's like look he is already way far gone beyond her in yeah. in his respect mm-hmm. although what i did love is that like he wins so many of it. Like, he, like just through sheer bullying force of will, he seems to win, like, so many of his situations he's in. Like, he wins yes! against, like, the coach. He wins against Billy. He wins against, like, his own partner. Mm-hmm. But the one person he's not able to beat is Julie. Because Julie's the one person who's actually doesn't even try to play his game. Just shuts him down completely and goes, yep. this actually sounds a lot like opinion without evidence to me, so I don't actually have to answer anything. With this, you know, yep. just all we know needs to do to actually shut him down and feel how powerless certainly is. Yeah, I was talking about that too. That they give him all these touches that again you would give a protagonist cop where he's one step ahead, you know, sinks the basket when he shows up, has the bit where he's got his back turned, Billy's about to beat him 
with a basketball without even looking. Carlson goes, ah, ah, ah. It's one of those. Yeah. It's, it's the stuff you would give kind of the heroic cop who you're hoping is going to come in and save the day. And it's decidedly not what happens yeah, in this nope. movie. So it's, like I said, it's just so we, 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 we're going to keep coming back to this where the movie being kind of so unique in its time period and so ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Yeah. But in terms of like the other transgressive qualities, of course, you've got the whole like, you know, obviously the whole incest dimension that's going on with Anne Cheryl. And for me, like I talk about how this is not like a violent movie per se, but for me, like there's like emotional violence, which is like going through like the whole film, which is Mm -hmm. really where the film becomes its most disturbing. Like you have right from the beginning, like all those scenes when Cheryl's like, you know, hugging Billy just a little bit too long. Yep. And for me, this is what I was talking about, the thing that got me, like, both times I watched. In the movie, every time she goes into Billy in his room, he's lying asleep, and she'll sit down in bed next to him and run her fingers along, like, his uh, back or something yes, to wake yes. him up. And it's really creepy. And then, like, they do this twice in the movie. Then in the third time, like, you see yes. this close-up of, like, Billy's chest, and the camera's running up. It's his, the like, most you know, uncomfortable. And, yeah. and you <laughs> see the hand coming down and running its fingers up, and you're thinking it's, like, Aunt Cheryl waking him up. Then you see the lips coming down and kissing his belly button. You're like, like what? Oh, and, oh, no! <laughs> and then it passes up in his jewelry, like it's like, like oh you got me <laughs> and literally the first time I watched that I jerked back my seat and went what and then it was yes. Julie and I forgot yes. about it and the second time I watched it I was like oh my god they did that again <laughs> it does such a good job of like just faking you out it's just like oh no she's gone too far and it's like oh it's Julie <laughs> it's cause they've seated in that hand like two times during the movie like that's where your mind goes when you're thinking about it and it's like oh my god it's Julie you know it's perfectly executed yeah with with cheryl with the mother like it's literally from scene one with her again it's so interesting where it's not like the pivot point that begins her descent happens like a little ways it's it's literally the first scene she wakes up and immediately the movie's peppering you with religious iconography all over because as it's tracking across her room as she wakes up it's virgin mary statue virgin mary on the wall cuts to the hallway first thing you see is another virgin mary thing so it's literally every Every wall in the house has some bit of religious iconography. It's ever present. They they put it in the literal foreground when we get to the loft sequence at the end. Yes. Which, which I love. But my favorite one is outside of her bedroom, which so we see in the back half when Billy's getting in. She has a particular portrait of Jesus, but it looks like someone used an Instagram filter to smash up a picture of Jesus with Alan Moore. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just very neat. I was like, it looks kind of like half Jesus, half Alan Moore. It's so striking. To me. <laughs> but her first scene, so she goes into Billy's bedroom. Billy's still asleep, pulls out his wallet, thumbs through it, and finds this condom. And so in most movies, it'd be a scene where someone like acts surprised or, you know, does like an eye roll or something like that in most you know, conventional films and then tucks the condom back in or be confrontational. But instead, she looks at him and gives this very complex look which is kind of partly like uh kids but it's also partly ooh green light basically it's very much based on the text we're given that's the inciting incident you know of it's like oh okay well if he's got this then we start down the roller coaster because yeah, <laughs> the movie has all these like even though like she's there's 
obviously something off from her right from the beginning. I mean, oh, she's done crazy mm-hmm. stuff like before even the timeline of the movie began. Yes, so there's yep. all these little like incidents that kind of further her along. Whether it be like finding the condom yep. escalating one thing, finding out Billy's going to be getting the scholarship escalates again. You know, like or killing the guy, like you know that escalates it again. There's all these like little steps towards her losing whatever tethers and structures she's built up around herself. Mm-hmm. But I think the whole dynamic of like her seeing like her son becoming like a sexual being or her son like we think it's her nephew but we find out over the course of the film it's actually her son but like mm-hmm. seeing like him become like a sexual being and growing up like it's these because weirdly enough it's like two different impulses which you can see working in the character one of the impulses is he's my little child and it's wrong that he's grown up i want to keep him my baby forever essentially yep. you know which you have playing on and you also have especially in the scene when he walks in on i'm having sex with julie it's presented as like a spouse, like walking in on their lover, like yep. you know, on their husband <laughs> yep. having an affair. She treats herself like a jilted lover, like you know, like he's cheating yep. on me with like her, and it's, it's so creepy. And, and even the way it's framed with like the kind of figure coming up towards the door and opening it and reviewing it, and like, I can explain, like you know, it's mm-hmm. framed like that. And I think it's such a really kind of like insidious, like really well played dynamic, and really kind of like makes you feel uncomfortable and makes you and just like like. It really kind of like brings a whole different because you don't exactly because like you say so much of it's implied we don't know what's happened between the two of them like what she you know yep. so so much is kind of left you know up to your imagination like you know and I just has a really kind of like uncomfortable uneasy energy to proceed with. I did like the consistency with her mental state. Yeah, like at no point is there really some sort of fake out that oh look she's sane here you know it, no from the it's every just, yeah. scene she's in <laughs> she is insane and that is clear in the history of her actions like she okay the father of billy uh, she murdered when he tried to leave her while she was pregnant the fact that her sister took billy away from her to raise and so she kills them off in the beginning of the film she's responsible for the brakes being cut from the very moment you see her in the film you can see in her eyes that glint of homicide and it, it doesn't go away it's always there she is always herself from start to finish all that changes is her ability to button it down. That's it. Yes. 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 That's it. Her level of control to not just go, well, let's just kill everyone. <laughs> that, that's all that changes. But she is always her throughout the entire film. And I really appreciate that. It's interesting. They, they talk in the commentary about like at one point, the approach to the film was going to be, it was going to be more nebulous about who exactly the villain was like potentially Billy was, was doing some bad stuff. Like it was supposed to be more vague, which you can kind of see in the end. Cause there's some weird edits just kind of along the way. So it, it seems like it might be kind of remnants of that version of the film. Yeah. But instead in the finished version, the movie tells you very early that she's a villain in this because in the very first scene where we see her in the flashback sequence, oh, yeah. not only does it freeze frame, there is a vibra slap. <laughs> Removing all doubt right from the beginning. Yeah, learn to fear the viber slap. You will live a lot longer in a horror movie. (laughs) Although it's interesting to talk about how there's like wee hints of like, you know, originally in some earlier drafts was going to be like more kind of like ambiguous stuff with Billy. Because one thing I thought was really interesting that caught me both times I watched the movie was there's that whole like pull apart brawl with him and Bill Paxton's Eddie, right? And they specifically hone in on Billy, but he says, you're dead, I'm going to kill you. 
and yep. then like then nothing ever comes of that. I just assumed yep. Yep. that like Eddie was going to show up dead next. There was going to be witnesses said you said you were going to kill him, and now he's dead. You know, it was going to be like you know that be nuts of- some hidden like deleted scene out there of Billy killing you know Bill Paxton. I'd be like, to get my hands on that one, <laughs> or not, or like maybe Aunt Cheryl killed Eddie because she'd heard he was mean to him or something. You know, and that came back on him as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. That'd be good. It's funny. I was rereading my copy of Crimson Cage number one before I did my second watch through of the film. So I kept thinking of the, the fight scene between Billy and, and Bill Paxton's characters being like this, you know, like Misawa <laughs> Kawada, just exchange of like <laughs> strong style strikes like, where it's know. just, just, uh, just like 10 minutes of forearms. <laughs> like, I, I love this movie, but it'd be better if the coach did like a burning hammer on Joe Carlson at the oh, end. Well, of it. Every, every movie would be better with a burning hammer in it. But, uh, <laughs> but we've talked about like, you know, all the major characters, but I think, you know, apart from, like, the character I really appreciate, you know, more than the movie is, like, Julia Duffy's Joey, who I think is really interesting, because mm-hmm. so much of the gender dynamics in this movie are kind of flipped in their head, like, yep. you know, you have, like, Billy's essentially, like, the final girl, like, and yes. he's so often presented in a position, like, you know, weak, because he's, like, been drugged, or he's injured, and he's, like, you know, crawling in the floor helpless or having like the killer looming over him you know or kind of like covering his like joy like protects him and like he's even like objectified like the women in the movie would be like yes him, like naked more often he's wearing clothes you know but you got the full rear shot at one point she reached yeah. breaks in on him in the bathroom which is all butt <laughs> yeah. and the worst thing is though it goes to show you how used to that he must be that she bursts in and i'm like naked and it's not like, like yes. oh my god he's like you know he's just like oh nope. give me a time. Oh, this you know, again like, not, not this again <laughs> but to fill that void they then have like joy coming in as the kind of like well first she's older than Billy if you know she's at, yep. she's already at college mm-hmm. she's paying for his meal she's got a job she's yeah, like, you know, yeah. yep. so then you have like you know that element and you have like she's the one that's standing up to Detective Carlson and she's like you know like talking to the other cop and she's been forthright in that sense investigating and putting together the story then you have like she's the one that actually has to go and fight Aunt Cheryl and like that big extended like you know chase and fight scene mm-hmm. you know and it's funny because like she's harder to kill than a lot of film slashers are yep. like, she gets hit in the head by a meat tenderizer and shakes it off somewhere and she's yep. back to that <laughs> and then she gets drowned in she, a lake yeah. and she comes back yeah. to that like, you know made of iron yeah that was it. it it's so funny watching this the first time how the movie teases you with her constant near death because she gets hit with the meat tenderizer and it's not like she swings and then rebounds. She swings and then just the, the hand just stays yeah. there. I mean, she almost as if she's embedded this thing. all over the fridge, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, then opens the fridge. That was hilarious. And, like, and it's all over <laughs> the inside of the fridge. So you're like, oh, she's dead for sure. And then she shows up, she's alive. And then she gets, you know, basically drowned and beaten with a rock. It's like, okay, now she's dead for sure. Nope. And then shows it again. It's like, man, she's tough as hell. <laughs> The Deputy Dewey of this movie. Yeah, yeah, very much. And, and like you mentioned, in terms of like the the gaze perspective of this, in terms of you know, male gaze, female gaze, so to speak, another way in, in which the movie's ahead is, which is, it's it's shockingly even-handed. Yes. Is, you know, yes, Julia Duffy is nude. Yes, Susan Terrell is nude. But in terms of like, if you were to, to time the screenshot, that one shot of Jimmy from behind is probably equal in screen time to everything else. He's frequently shirtless. And yep. in... The post-coital sequence, which we touched on a little bit earlier, when we see, again, it's not 
Billy kissing her naked chest, it's reversed. It's her yep. kissing his. Yeah, as I said, he's lying down like he's like the sucking yes. and she's on top. Like, you know, like, you know, like... Yeah, until he goes to fetch postcoital cokes, which, <laughs> which I was just amused by. <laughs> their postcoital thing instead of cigarettes is glass bottle cokes. <laughs> and the interesting thing as well is, like, going back to like, the whole dynamic with the coach, there's specifically multiple scenes where, like, Billy's, like, shirtless or undressed around his aunt, and that's specifically framed in a way to create kind of, like, sexual uneasiness or kind of his vulnerability, mm-hmm. like, in her presence. But in contrast, you have the scene where, like, he's shirtless and he goes to visit the coach, and it's framed in a way where, like, that's not even a factor. Like, you know, it's not sexual at all. Like, you know, it's just that, you know, like, he's that because he's, like, dressed for gym or whatever, and it's not yep. framed in a way where he's objectified or under the coach's gaze. Yep. So yeah. I think it's quite interesting how, like, they play with the dynamics and they play with the framing in those ways as well. It is a fascinating film. No, like, you know, as I say, again, just want to say again, much love to... The bold Margie, who was effectively useless in terms of like what she actually did, but I admire her for trying. <laughs> yeah, that that actress, Marcia Lewis. I, I wish there was more in her filmography. She's so much fun in this. Yeah, as again for this very sitcommy part, and particularly too in the sequence where she saves Billy's life in a way towards the end, which is the scene after Cheryl has cut her hair. And Margie's oh, yeah. instantly, oh shit! And <laughs> and there's the scene where Billy comes in. He's like, "What'd you do with your hair?" And Margie instantly dives in. And, Don't you love it? It's the new thing. Do you want to die? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, tremendous fun. I I, I was. I was so sad when she got killed. Yeah. But she's so resourceful as well. Like she wants to stay around and like make sure Billy's alright and eavesdropping what's going on. But she also makes sure to go and close all the windows to give herself a cover story for why she's still there. So when like you know Cheryl comes in and goes, Why are you still here? It's like, well, close your windows. <laughs> oh, it, it's it's yeah. Folks, this is gonna be the most effusive I've been on a film probably since we did the innocence back in our first year. Because <laughs> I just this is not a flawless film, but this movie does so many things that I appreciate. And it is so much fun yeah. to just watch it. If you if you like things that are aligned the the kind of gothic camp element of you know the first thing I thought of in finishing this is this is so whatever happened to Baby Jane mm-hmm. tonally. And if you're into things along those lines, it's so entertaining. It it is incredibly uncomfortable. Just warning you again, this might be the way oh, yeah, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's dark, but it has a kind of like malevolent glee to it. You know, it's like certain movies of that year to have which makes it a lot of fun to watch as well yeah and even from all the elements we we talked about in terms of it being ahead of its time or you know just really intriguing plot elements or the way it inverts tropes and whatnot even if all of that wasn't present i would say susan terrell's performance honestly is one of those it would be worth watching it for her i mean mm-hmm. you know, like i said it, it's yeah. it's very particular performance where she's very much in that camp gothic element but she is again such a force of nature. When I watched this the first time, I, like I recognized her name, but I didn't remember too much. Which is funny because I watched Forbidden Zone a few times in college, so you would think I would remember her. And when I first heard her voice when she starts speaking in this film, I said, "Wait a minute!" And I sat there and thought, and I listened to it, and I could hear in my head, I was like, "An illuminating history between the everlasting struggle for world supremacy, a fall between powers of technology and magic." She did the opening voiceover for Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh my god and then it occurred to me i didn't realize that she played juliana in fire and ice with the later ralph mm-hmm. Bakshi film and she very much falls into like the margaret white pamela verti's canon of like yes. terrifying matriarchs yes and if you see this movie and and you like her performance definitely check out john houston's movie fat city which is 
She was nominated for an Academy Award for this film. It's a fabulous movie in and of itself with Jeff Bridges and Stacey Keach. If anyone listens to the movie podcast Watch with Jen by Jen Johans, she just started season one and brought on S.A. Cosby, the author of the book Razorblade Tears, which is an absolutely phenomenal book. And they talk about three John Houston movies. One of them's Fat City. They also do Key Largo and Pritzi's Honor. So definitely check that episode out. But Susan Terrell, she is amazing in Fat City. So I watched Fat City and I watched a few other performances of hers just spinning out of this. So when we got to the end of 2021, and John, I'm sure you got the same email because we know you've got a letterbox to count, is letterbox sends you that year end summary of, you know, here's what you did in, in you know, the year 20. Here was your favorite movie. Here's what you know, that tells you watch most, et cetera, et cetera. Funny enough, my most watched that time is Denzel Washington. <laughs> oh man, well, yeah, we're get, we're gonna have to have you back for Fallen. That's gonna be great. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I didn't realize how long the email was. Like I saw this stuff up top, and I thought that was it. And I didn't. And so eventually, I kept scrolling, and there was this. There's a field on there which says the three actors you watched most. It, like initially, it was like the, the most watch actor, and it, and mine was Robert England because we, we just did a whole bunch of. <laughs> <here's Chris. Okay. laughs> yeah. Mine said it gave me three towards the bottom. It says your three most watch actors are Robert England, Susan Terrell. And Big Daddy came because I watched a lot of rap documentaries <laughs> last year. So it's like, I'm, I wonder, I'm reasonably sure I'm probably the only person on Letterboxd to three most watched actors were Robert England, Susan Terrell, and Big Daddy Kane. It's so, a hell of a combo. We'll have to see them in the movie. We'll put that screenshot up on Twitter at some point. <laughs> but, <laughs> right, I can't, I see, when I did mine, mine was one Denzel Washington, two Brad Dourif, and I can't remember who the third one was. But yeah, right. no, oh, no, that was the general Excellent lineup. choice. Excellent choice. <laughs> John, this has been an absolute delight. So, but yeah, let's talk about what you're working on at the moment a bit. We talked a bit about Crimson Cage earlier, which you're currently putting out from AWA, uh, which if our reference to New Japan Strong Style <laughs> wrestling wasn't a clue uh, or our 13th episode, I am a huge wrestling person. So that comic has been a dream for me so far. Yeah, it's been a dream for me. Like I've wanted, like, I've been a wrestling fan for as long as I can remember, and like for a long time, I've wanted to do like a wrestling comic, and a comic specifically set like in the nineteen eighties territory kind of landscape. And I didn't have the right framing device, but then like maybe a few years back, maybe around the time um, the Justin Curzel, like Michael Fassbender, maybe Beth came out, and then, mm. and then around that time, I also saw Throne of Blood, which just became one of my favorite movies. Oh, Throne of Blood is is so good. Yeah, no, it's one of the best movies ever made. I just love it. But that kind of got me thinking, like, what would my version of it, Beth, be? And then I kind of took that and put it with the wrestling idea and thought, this all fits together really well. And it was one of those weird things where, normally when I'm trying to pitch a comic, like, you know, it sounds like some kind of, like, bad stand-up comic trying to go through a joke and he's forgot his lines. <laughs> like, you know, oh, I forgot to mention that bit where this guy had, you know. But, like, this one here, like, it was just it was such a clean easy pitch to say, like, it's a retail in the volume, Shakespeare's Macbeth, set against the backdrop of the 1980s pro wrestling territories. Right away, you say that sentence, and you get whether someone's going to like it or not. Thankfully, a lot of folks' eyes have lit up when I've said that. And, like, it all fit together so well in terms of, like, instead of the king, you have the champion. Instead of, like, the king visiting, like, Macbeth's castle, it's like he's coming to Chuck Frenzy's territory in Louisiana, yep. where he's, like, the main event star of a small promotion who's hit the glass ceiling. And yeah, there's other little ways that all kind of ties together. Like instead of the Shakespearean soliloquies, like you know, we have characters with microphones doing promos to camera. Nice. And like there's like wee versions of that that all kind of all just dovetails together really nicely. I think it's just a great fit. Because like Shakespeare, like, you know what what I've realized is well one, 
it's not news that like Shakespeare stories are timeless. They're infinitely like remakeable and adaptable because like the core elements of them like don't age essentially. Like you know they can be applied to new types of narrative. But it's been so fun taking like the kind of core ideas of these and saying, well, how can I apply that to a wrestling perspective? Mm. Because wrestling's very dramatic. It's very kind of like you know grand gestures of good and evil that kind of feels almost Shakespearean at times. So it can end up being like a nice wee way to kind of like you know dovetail. And one of the things that I really love. Like I, I've watched a couple of, I listened or read to a couple of reviews of The Crimson Cage, and every so often I'll read a review from somebody who clearly doesn't know that it's an adaptation of Macbeth, and it's like, oh, that's really, that's really strange supernatural stuff going on. But because they've never read Macbeth or seen Macbeth, oh my but gosh, they still yeah. love the story, and like, that's, this is really cool, and it's like, you know, it's nice to see that like, those stories still resonate with people. So yeah, it's definitely got me thinking about like other sort of Shakespearean wrestling stories I could maybe do in the future if they'll let me. But yeah, like you know, in the meantime, like I'm very happy to get me in the Crimson Cage. Yeah, anyone who who wants an intriguing update on Macbeth, like you mentioned, it, it's such a fascinating setting to use for it. The art by you know Alex and Ashley McCormick. Alex Cormack, yeah. Uh, you know, if you're you know if if you like hard art, you probably saw Alex McCormick's art on the series he did with uh, Rich Duick for IDW last year. Oh yeah, um, Sea of Sorrows. Yep, Sea of Sorrows. Yeah, and which was also gorgeous. Yeah, it's such a good looking. I mean, book. I've worked with Alex Cormack um, going back years. Like I did, I've done, I got done, and I'm still doing sync with him, which has been a blast. You know, working with him and that, and then before that, we did Oxymoron, Lovelace Nightmare. So, like, for me, like Alex is like you know my comics life partner. It's got to the point now where if I'm ever, if I'm pitching a new comic or developing a new comic idea, by default, my brain will instantly jump to imagining it as drawn by Alex and I have to, like, you know, train myself to try and think of somebody else because as talented as he is, he can draw everything. Like, you know, so, like, <laughs> right. yeah, no, so like, he's such a great guy, super talented. I love his art style and I think he's a great fit for this book and I'm so glad we got to work together on it. Yeah, it, it's a gorgeous book. It's so much fun to read. It, so if you, again, you know, if you like all all the elements we we talked about, horror comics, Shakespeare and tragedy, all that stuff is great. And also, if, if you are a wrestling fan, as a wrestling fan, when I got to your NWA champion analog named Van Emerald, and when I actually got to the point where his finishing move was called the Emerald Fusion, I had to put the book down because I was getting such a chuckle. Ah, oh, there's an Emerald <laughs> Flosion reference. Well, funny enough, actually, I remember like, I saw like it was some. Some person posted like a comment and they're like, you know, well, this person obviously doesn't know his wrestling that well because what? actually, um, the Emerald Flosion was actually debuted like years later in Japan. It's actually called the Emerald Flosion <laughs> and not the Emerald Fusion. Uh, and specifically, like, you know, I specific, I know it's called the Emerald Flosion, but I specifically named this the Emerald Fusion because Emerald Flosion is like his move. It's not Van Emerald's like, and I started, I didn't right. them, but given the exact same name, so I changed it slightly. <laughs> no, I, I I enjoyed it immensely. Again <laughs> and again, you see, an, what is essentially an Emerald Fusion is depicted by Alex McCormick. So it is, it is just wonderful. And and you've also got Hotel going right, the second round of Hotel. Yep, the Hotel is in its second volume. Um, Hotel is a horror anthology series which is set in Piero Court, which is this old roadside motel off Route sixty six. Officially, it doesn't exist. You won't find it on any map. But if you're traveling alone and you're truly desperate for sanctuary or secrecy, perhaps you'll see a sign on the edge of the road saying next exit that will take you there. Nice. And so the series is like just a collection of stories that take place in this hotel. Um, each one's a kind of standalone, weird, creepy tale, but they all gradually kind of come together to form like a larger whole and a larger mystery. 
we had a volume one that came out like literally in the first issue launched right as the pandemic began. I said, like, oh no, this book's dead in the water. But it ended up being folk really rallied behind it. And like, you know, despite the pandemic hitting us with a terrible timing, like folk really loved this book. It ended up being like one of the most successful, popular books I've done. People right away were saying they want volume two, we'd love to have more. And so eventually folk were so loud that we had, you know, they were undeniable essentially. And we ended up like getting volume two commissioned. And this one, I feel we were emboldened to tell a bigger story and a bigger scale and be more ambitious with it. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun returning back to that world. Dalbert Talich is the artist, Lee Lowry is the colorist, Sal Cipriano the letterer. We might we, we kind of all are more in sync now. We kind of like we know how each other work and like we know each other's styles. So I feel I'm more confident writing knowing who I'm writing before. And yes, it's been a lot, a lot of fun to work on. And as I say, hopefully we get to do more of that. Hopefully people are continuing to enjoy it. Nice. And so you've got the sync, which was successfully kickstarted, and I know the that's coming soon. Yeah, I mean, I know for, one of the things is folk were asking all about, like, you know, when sync coming back, when sync coming back, and it was kind of out of our hands because originally the plan was going to be that sync volume two came out twenty nineteen, and the plan was going to be we were going to take like a year out, and we were going to do Crimson Cage in twenty twenty, then come back in twenty twenty one for sync volume three. And then the pandemic happened, which pushed the schedule back for everything. And we were in this kind of like flux with the Crimson Cage, where obviously all, all the publishers essentially shut down their production of new projects. And we were essentially told, like, you know, be ready to start this at any time, but we don't know when it will be. So we couldn't really get started on like Sync Volume 3. We were waiting to do Crimson Cage. And then, like, we finally got the go ahead to do it and that, but pushed the timeline back and everything for a year. So Crimson Cage became the 2021 book. and sync volume three is now 2022 okay but thankfully folk have forgotten about us like i was worried that folk just wouldn't care about sync anymore but that did kickstart our launch it was a massive hit it was our biggest campaign ever and yeah so folk are really still into it and you know that book's in development right now and looks amazing and sync volume three is all written so that'll be coming shortly after big hits uh the stands and people's inboxes so yeah no like i'm really looking forward to getting back into that world and it's a comic that's very close to my heart, and I think some of the issues we've got coming up are some of the wildest ones yet, so I really can't wait for people to read them. Nice. I, I Yeah, can't wait to check out. We just got our backer kit email for Dig, so I, I can't wait to see that. And do, do we have a time frame for when we might know more about uh, what you got coming up with Vault? Um, I don't know when more is going to be getting announced. I know, because I assume it's going to be this year at some point. I don't know exactly when, I don't know, but that's been a real fun project to work on. This is a project that has been in the works and been discussed for some time. And when I remember when I was doing all the pitching for the Crimson Cage at the time, I talked about this being like my ultimate dream project, the biggest comic, like, you know, I couldn't imagine loving anything more than I love this subject matter. But the project I'm doing for Vault, if there's anything like I love just as much, it's this thing here and the kind of world that I'm delving into here. And I've had such a blast. I've been in the middle of writing it right now. So much fun writing this. One of those things like, you know, when I, as I'm writing, I'm like, <laughs> I can't believe I get to write this. And <laughs> like working with George, I've wanted to work with George. Like if you were to look at like, if you were to sneak into my Twitter DMs, and please don't, but if you were <laughs> to do that, you would find conversations with George going back like to like 2017, 2018, talking about how great it would be if we could find something to work on together so the fact that i get to work with george on this is even better i'm really excited to see what he brings to the story and yeah i can't wait to share more with you i think it's going to be a really fun project that people are really going to enjoy i know i'm enjoying writing it like it's a book that i'm writing for me so if nobody else likes it i know i'll like it <laughs> um, yeah watch this space 
I, I can't wait. Honestly, we, we so our end to vault was uh, the Savage Shores by Rom V, and I love after that reading pick. that, I, I honestly, I, I buy every single book that comes out from Vault, and I thoroughly enjoyed every single one. Uh, back in our Blade episode, we had Danny Lore on. This was before Danny put out Lunar Room, which we've been enjoying. Issue two of that just came out. So yeah, as evidenced by my Vault T-shirt, which no one can see. Huge fan of Vault. So I, I whatever the book is, I cannot wait for it. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to plug, or is that cover it? Um, that pretty much covers it. Like I say, like this year is going to be a busy year. I've got, like I say, um, both Crimson Cage and Hotel are um, out in shops now. I've got Dig and Sync Volume Three coming later this year. I've got the Vault thing coming later this year. I've got another thing that's not been announced coming this year. Um, so it's going to be a lot. You're going to be seeing. Oh, you're going to be seeing so much of me. You'll be sick of me this year. And also, <laughs> as always, I've got um, like you'll find me on Twitter at JohnLees927. You'll find me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash John Lee's, where every week I share original essays, every month I share original short story, I share like process like essays about old scripts that which I share from my archive. I have a whole I have a whole I have a page by page behind the scenes breakdown of sync. Um I'm currently on issue eight of that. I was a whole bunch of content, so if you like my stuff, consider checking that out. And finally you can find my weekly newsletter at deepender.johnleescomics.com. That's deep dash ender.johnleescomics.com. And that's all the plugs that I've got. Very <laughs> nice. And also, final plug: go and watch um, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker on Shudder. It's very good. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, a big here here to your Patreon. We, we're one of your Patreon supporters, and and Thank I you. can attest to the amount of content you're putting out there it is just constant with with you know, the page analysis, scripts, and whatnot. It, it's tremendous. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you Thank for you. support. And obviously, thank you. You have no idea how much it means to come on to talk this movie with us. So we really, really appreciate it. Had a blast. One of my favorite things to talk about, apart from myself, is horror. (laughs) So um, (laughs) so, any time someone wants me to talk about horror movies, you know, my eyes will light up, especially like, you know, 80s horror and stuff in this era. Like, so, yeah, I really appreciated the chance to come and talk about like this little gem and hopefully encourages more people to check it out. Well, we'll definitely have to do it again soon. Yeah, fall yeah, no, the latest. I'm, I'm giving my short list of movies I'm keen to talk about. <laughs> Let me give you my essay for why Psycho 2 is great. <laughs> Big thanks again to John Lees for coming on the pod. It was so much fun talking to him. Yay! Yay! I don't know if I should cheer since I wasn't here for that. Now my, my voice suddenly popping up might be awkward. Oh, now you show up. <laughs> like a special guest star in a Muppets episode or some shit. Or I'm sorry, Fraggles episode. <laughs> I went to Muppets because, again, you know, didn't have Fraggle Rock money. We can't all be rich like me. <laughs> Check out John's comics, Mountainhead from IDW, Hotel from AWA, Crimson Cage from AWA, so John can make that sweet, sweet Fraggle Rock money. If you don't know where that <laughs> phrase comes from, go back and listen to our... Uh, I was going to say listen to our Freddy's Nightmares episode, but don't do that. Go all the way back to episode four where it started. <laughs> let's, let's, let's do that. <laughs> oh, come on. Our Freddy's Nightmares episode is great. That episode never happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a certain cash. Cachet? Cash? Cashew? I don't know. There are definitely gems in the rough with that episode. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed. But 
Thanks again to John for coming on. So now we're bringing our sports correspondent on for our <laughs> for this portion of the review for a special segment we're going to call Fast Breaker Bucket Maker. Oh, Jesus Christ, the basketball in this movie. Yeah, so you saw his activity before he got drugged. So, what? I mean, do you think he had what it took to uh, make the college? Of course or- not. <laughs> in this movie could play basketball <laughs> they've seen basketball they could sort of act it at least it was better than the basketball in catwoman if that's something but no like fucking bill paxton dribbled like he was afraid of the ball and life <laughs> and just yeah it, it was not good it was i mean it was like somebody who had only watched highlights of george mecan and bill Cousy. And said, that's the hot stuff. And had never heard of, I don't know, the 70s, the NBA, Dr. J. But this came out in what, 81? 81. I mean, Dr. J was already famous. He would have been one of like three basketball players everybody on earth could name. And clearly nobody on this production could. They had the the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar poster, which he, you know. Front and center. yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty good. But clearly they only had the poster and no highlight reel. Or, I mean, it was just... He wakes up in bed and immediately sinks a free throw. (laughs) The minute I... I, Again, I mentioned before when we talked to John, kind of the stages of of me falling in love with this movie as I watched it. But when it got to the bit of him prepping for the basketball game, where he zips up his little gym bag, turns around and gives the thumbs up to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I said... Jake can't hate it. He, he just he can't. <laughs> okay, well, look, I did not hate this movie. Okay, I didn't think it well, was. Well, 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 so you you obviously hated the basketball. How was the music? It present. <laughs> it, it, it didn't make much impression. I, on me. I don't know who you are. Then, if you didn't like the basketball and you didn't care about the music, then what did this movie have to offer you? Because those are the only things you care about. <laughs> this movie, this movie made me more uncomfortable than just about any oh other God. film we have done is, on this podcast. It is so uncomfortable. Sorry, I'm back on Nick. Just giving you the speech that Greg Henry gets in payback. <laughs> <laughs> You got a light? What good are you? <laughs> but yes, this is a a thoroughly awkward watch. Uh-huh. Like, my, my first note is, what the fuck is with this cat shit? And it's because, you know, when he wakes her up and she's like meowing. I mean, that's, Wait, that- wait, that's your first note? Nothing no. on, on the... Okay, it's my first note in all caps. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, I was pretty excited about the opening. Uh, my, my very first note is, is this made for TV? And then my second note is, made it pretty far without hitting the brakes. And then my third note is, oh shit, they got the Descent and the Final Destination. The Ray Twofer. <laughs> and then was my first note about candles. I got a lot of note about candles in this movie. Because it was driving me nuts the entire film. This is the most candle-tastic movie we've reviewed since The Craft. Yes. It's, a lot it's, of candles. Right. And it's, it's, again, like it's called Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, among other things. Like, you can't get, I guess, too hung up on the reality of the situation, especially with the basketball. And we're talking about going to college. I mean, come on. No. Nobody in this was going to college on any kind of scholarship. Especially, like, she calls him dumb at one point. It made me laugh out loud. <laughs> like, it was the most subtle. She's like, college is for people with money and brains. You know? like, oh, shit. She called you a poor, useless, dumb bastard. <laughs> I, I love too. Again, this movie's so wonderfully overwrought in the best way. When when she he wakes up and he's first in the loft, and, and, and where she's confined him to this little love nest that she's built. And again, just the the visual structure of it, where 
we have this whole like heaven and hell thing where he's she moves him to a, an attic loft, whereas the carcass of her dead lover is in the basement. Yep. You yep. know, <laughs> so it's this whole, you know, stratification of the home. But when she tells him, he's like, don't go to college. It's full of perverts. <laughs> While she's trying to fuck her child. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had, all right, so a couple of things. First of all, her having the little shrine to Patrick Duffy in the basement <laughs> was fine. Except that every time she went in there, there was candles burning and a shitload of dust. And you know what? This movie, when it actually happened, it burned down when he was six. That's what happened. <laughs> that house burned down when he was six. And the candles, like, she has, like, these candles that these were lit clearly all night. It's a tea light. <laughs> tea lights don't last for shit. I don't even like that I know that they're called tea lights. They weren't even votives. <laughs> votives are the slightly bigger ones. My brother works for a candle company. Leave me alone. Oh, my God. <laughs> candle accuracy is very important to me. Same as basketball accuracy. And this movie had none of it. We haven't had a sponsor yet, man. Maybe we should go after James Boyer. like, you want to sponsor an episode? Which is an incest-centric slasher with mild basketball. Brought to you by Candles, Candles, Candles. When you have corpses in your basement, there's no better way to get rid of the scent than candles. Won't catch dust on fire. <laughs> but, like, the the attic thing was funny, too, because there's a scene where he, like, he's surprised they have an attic. And he's never gone up there. Yep. And then when she makes that little numbness and he finally wakes up in there, what the fuck is he sleeping on? It looks like it's basically like a child's bed. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's far but it's not small. even a bed. It's it's like a board. It's like on a pallet with a slight mattress on it. It's like prison conditions, except with stuffed animals. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. She wasn't in a hurry. All the, the child memorabilia, just but it, it's so unsettling. But it's, again, this is where all the religious iconography is so funny because there's very clearly, like I said, there's religious iconography all over the house, but there's a cross statue on the nightstand next to him. Yeah. And very clearly there. And then all of a sudden when they cut to a reverse shot, they put that motherfucker right up front. <laughs> it takes up like a third of the frame. Yep. And again, it's, it's so, again, they recognize the inherent comedy in the setting so much but but if we play this to the hilt and but they only do it visually like there's not there's not a ton of like her you know praise jesus in and stuff nope. like that like the religion the religion in, in the oh, film the religion, itself no, is no, not no. overt in any way other than the visuals it's not heavy-handed at all no no it, no it's there in terms of moral stuff but that's less explicitly religion and more just feels more like the south yeah. of all her you know you realize this is wrong, right? You know, again, her all this moralizing she does, whereas again, she's actively trying to. Yeah. Fuck her well, but that's in the Bible. Yeah, it's where she got it. Yeah. I did. It, it's such a weirdly progressive movie. Yes. That I, I think I checked four times when it was made. It's shocking how ahead of its time it was in some ways. It, it's so ahead of its time, and yet they still have eight people on a basketball team. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> come on. <laughs> It's so weird that the little details that don't that are like just off like that in this. And it's it's not bad. It doesn't hurt the movie unless you're, you know, a nut job like I am. <laughs> but the one that did get me, the one that bothered me was that you see inside the fridge a couple of times and the grape jelly moves shelves. Yes, it does. And if you don't have like a set shelf for like your jelly and condiments and stuff and you just move that shit around, you are clearly a psychopath like that's all i would have needed to know if i was the cop i would have gone in there opened the fridge saw the you know the grape jelly and like came back the next day saw it was in a different spot in the fridge i would be like she did it <laughs> but there's the, i i don't know but i i enjoyed this movie and it had such weird 
things you don't see much like her, her you know tits out knives out murder like that never happens you never see like you know whip them out and then stab somebody it's just well fleeting too which is what we talked yeah. a l- about a little bit with john which is what i find so interesting which is the the women's nudity is present but it's comparatively it's very fleeting it lingers yeah not it lingers significantly on him more, significantly more, it does linger him. more on on billy than it does everyone else yep and also just something like i rewatched it twice before we recorded this i, I love we watching this movie so much and one thing that struck me that i didn't mention before too is with the billy character one of the things in terms of the sexuality portion of the the character that i find so funny is the scene that precedes the scene where he sleeps with julia where he tells her his aunt's going out of town in most movies the way this character has been portrayed so far in this so golly gee willikers on every conceivable level and oh gosh gee you know drinking milk nonstop, you know which his mother's basically force feeding him but you know and just all this you know and then licks off him and then licks off him after it's been poisoned she wasn't smart but so they push his that he has kind of a a sheltered quality to him because of you know how he's been raised yep and in, in most characters like that in the situation in which they're going to have go into a love scene, like his character would be kind of like nervous or something. Like there'd be a scene of him going like, Oh, I'm not sure about this or, Oh, uh, you know, or like some sense of indecision in this movie. He says, Hey, my aunt's going out of town. Let's fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he's still a basketball player. They all lay pipe. <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. I was like, Oh, this no hesitation. It just immediately cuts to them post coital. He's like, want a Coke? And and then they go back at it. So. Well, it's, it feels like it's sort of part and parcel of the kind of inversion of the final girl trope that this oh, movie does very much. You know, he, he's very much in that, that role. And, you know, she's the helper friend rather than, you know, the, the final, I don't, I, it, it was interesting how it kind of played differently on so many of those things like that. And Julia, even more unkillable than many characters in our Oh, movies. yeah. She's like a fucking juggernaut <laughs> out there. Iron Titan out there. <laughs> she's the, the, the Black Knight from Monty Python. She's but a stretch. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, but in the end, I like, I like this movie. It's, you know, yeah, it's got 15-foot set shots that made me want to weep and then die. But at the same time, <laughs> it does such a, a – like, it's so – like I said, weirdly progressive. Like the coach is is you know the only fully good character in the entire thing. Yes, and well the and the, the kids, but yeah, with within yeah. But it's so interesting, and her performance is so good. And I just I I loved everything about it. I love that what's her face Margie only shows up for murders. And- <laughs> I was about to say we got to give Margie some credit on being on the side of the angels in this movie because she her timing's impressive. Yeah, she saves some lives in this. You know, yeah, she's only there when people die. She's an angel of death, but she closes your windows when it's raining. Man, she's a good person. <laughs> I was sad when she got got because yeah, me too. She preemptively saves her husband's life in one of her, in like her second appearance with, oh. make sure to reference the pickled tomatoes in one of my favorite line delivered movies. They were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Their, their appearance is so weirdly sitcom specific vibe in this, you know, dropped into this otherwise, you know, anti-dearest weird fucking movie, but it comes off perfect. And I, I really, like I said, I, I expected to hate this. I didn't. I really quite liked it. It's a fascinating film. 
and one that I, I would actually recommend to people who can, you know, stomach it. <laughs> There's a line in um, Community where John Oliver is talking about like a made up Game of Thrones show and they're, they're all talking about it. And he just has the line, they really get the incest right. And I kept thinking of that through this whole film. <laughs> so I, I enjoy In fact, why don't I, let me do the, the community connection real quick. Oh, yeah. Nick's already rubbing his forehead. So let's just let's lean just into that. Let's keep that ball rolling. Yep. <laughs> so the community connection is this is Gwen McGee. And she was on the community episode where Abed becomes Jesus. He makes the, the film, you know, the Abed, 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 that one. <laughs> and she's also in Frailty with Bill Paxton. Ah. So, and I wanted to, I was looking for a, a connection via Bill Paxton specifically through Frailty. So I was happy there was one because. Frailty is so good. This movie is about such a fucked up family and Frailty is about a fucked up family. Yep. And that episode of Community is about making a fucked up movie. Frailty, chef's kiss. No, like this has synergy. Yeah, Frailty's one we'll, we'll have to do at some point. I, Absolutely. Frailty's a rare movie I saw in the theater, didn't like, thought about it for two weeks and said, wait a minute. No, I like that. And then when I watched it again, I'm like, no, I love that. It's so fucked up. <laughs> so Gwen McGee. And that's our, our Community connection through Bill Paxton and Frailty. Yay. So I was I was happy to find that connection. And, you know, R.I.P. Bill Paxton, because he's awesome and everything. Uh, pour one out for him. Love that man. Could not dribble, though. This this was <laughs> this was somehow worse basketball than the game of horse and synchronic, which wasn't even bad. It was just confusing. Even if the quality of the basketball wasn't great, I figured you would in the climactic basketball game. I figured you would appreciate two things. One is the fact that the opposing team is basically wearing Celtics colors. <laughs> yeah, I appreciated that. <laughs> they're, they're sensibly the antagonists in this movie. It's, it's an apt parallel. <laughs> and the other is is at the end of that scene when, so at, at this point in the movie, Billy has slugged a shitload of drugged milk at this point. When it fully kicks in, he's running down the court and he takes a spill into the wall, but it's all one take. And so you see him basically go from one end of the court all the way across the other end, and he hits that wall hard. It's padded, but yep. he hits it hard. Wham! To the point that it's like, <laughs> like it was, oh, shit! It made, it made me think of uh, John Madden calling it stumbling, mumbling, rumbling. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect, yeah. R.I.P. John Madden, too. God, everybody's dead. This sucks. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I was happy there was basketball in it because, you know, I, I figured the first movie we did with, you know, real basketball and it was going to end up being the society. And that made me sad. Oh, my God. And I and by real basketball, I mean, you know, paying a nod, but there's no real basketball in that movie either. The one thing that bummed me out is because, again, there's that there's the big Kareem Abdul-Jabbar poster, the one that he gives the thumbs up to as he's heading out. The Favorite scene that, in the movie. Yeah, the, the one thing that bummed me out is so when he's initially drugged after the basketball scene he's in the loft but at one point later when he gets drugged again he's moved back to his old bedroom and at that point like he's so drugged up he can barely like you know get out of bed he's just Ugh. and i wanted a scene of him hallucinating we, we talked earlier about how the character of carlson the Bo Benson character is the only person who gets like a what we call a fantasy sequence yep you know this character who's so bigoted and so racist and so thoroughly awful that he's the only person in the movie gets a, you know, here's what he sees. Yeah, and Billy it's Jackhole there. You know, every the other cop, Sergeant Cook, he gets a bit where he says, here's what I think's happened. And they play actual footage from the opening because that's what happened. So yep. 
But there was one other fantasy sequence I wish we'd had, which is I really wanted Billy in bed, you know, drugged up. And for the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar poster to start talking to him. <laughs> like, really let me down out there on the court today, Billy. I'm sorry. <laughs> that would have been perfect. Man, it would have been like singles with Xavier McDaniel telling him to not come yet. It would have been perfect. <laughs> God, it's been ages since I've seen that. Forever. I watched it not too long ago, man. I still like that movie. I still live in the 90s, man. That was my happy place. Well, I'm sorry. Thank you for enduring this trip to the 80s, the early 80s in this movie. I'm very glad you liked it. Like I said, I, yeah, I me too. I, I didn't think you would absolutely hate it. I figured you said if for folks who haven't seen it, like we it's currently on Shutter. But if you haven't seen it, you're aside from a spoiling thing, your appreciation for this movie is very much usually going to depend on your tolerance for it. It's, it's very much that campy, gothic. You know, yeah, very much motif, so. Very which much I so. normally don't have a particularly high tolerance for but it, right. it just it worked and it, well it's it's all held so together by her gradual unraveling yes performance and it's really remarkably done for a movie that feels like it was made by five bucks directed by a the i dream a genie guy which and you know is is all about fucking incest and and cat noises and licking milk off your son yeah if you try to sell this to me on paper i'd be like yeah <laughs> <laughs> But no, I, 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 it was so uncomfortable for me that I actually didn't enjoy the film until after I was finished watching it and like rethought about it. That's a good movie. <laughs> I had to redigest it in my brain to really appreciate it for what it was. It's like frailty because it me. was so uncomfortable <laughs> in mid watch. I'm just like, oh, ah, what is this shit I'm watching? And I got the end of it like, oh, actually, I was pretty intelligent. Well, but it, it's I, I think that's a bit of a testament to it is that it's so uncomfortable, but the film is is gleefully making you uncomfortable and yes. not. Yes. It's not, you know, over the top trying to shock you. No, it's trying to make you uncomfortable. It's not like, you know, fucking French New Extreme or whatever it's called. <laughs> you know, or it's, or Coming it's to Shudder in March. They just announced today. <laughs> really? They're, yeah, they're they're bringing over a bunch of the new French extremity films. Whew. Some of those are rough. You know what? It, it kind of reminded me in the way it did that to you without feeling exploitative or over the top or hackneyed or, you know, boring. It reminded me a little bit of Kill List. That's an interesting. Because huh. Kill List makes you very uncomfortable, but it does it in a in an organic. And I mean, it's, Kill List is rough. It's certainly rougher than this. And it's not, you know, campy gothic. It's, you know much worse yeah. kill list is less playful <laughs> a lot of ben wheatley movies are but that one's less so. but it, it plays that uncomfortableness straight it right it's, it's trying to make you squirm but it's not trying to make you squirm in a it doesn't feel overdone it feels like i said it feels in an organic way it's not it's not like something where it's trying to shock you just for shock value this is trying to make you uncomfortable because the story it's telling is uncomfortable Yes. Yeah, and and the bits that are played to the hilt are very deliberate. So, like we talked yeah. about, like the the set designs and whatnot, where it's so over the the amount of you know, religious stuff they fit in, and all this. So, like you said, it's just it's shockingly interesting. Yeah. On just every level, and it, this is a movie that I probably would have enjoyed because I enjoy camp gothic stuff. Like I mentioned, this movie to me has a thorough whatever happened to Baby Jane vibe which I love very much. So, and, and, and so I would have enjoyed that anyway, but even if you don't normally enjoy that stuff, I think the reasons to check this out, like we've mentioned is it's so ahead of its time. 
it's so shockingly well thought out in terms of how it's constructed. And a lot of people are good in it, but just Susan Tyrell. I really think yeah. Susan Tyrell's performance. I mean, it's camp and she's, she's playing it to 11. Cause that was yep. Susan Tyrell played basically everything <laughs> to 11. And she's fantastic. Again, if folks haven't seen fat city, the John Houston movie, check it out. She's phenomenal in it, but she is such a goddamn force of nature in this movie that it's like every I've watched this movie probably about 10 times now. And every time it's just like, God, she's so good in this. I mean, her controlled disintegration in this is just fantastic. It's incredibly impressive. Which I, I just, I didn't expect coming into this. I mean, you know, we, we watched it for such a goofy reason. You know, for this to be good, it's like, well, that's that's synchronicity or, or whatever. That's that's the best part of having a podcast like this. He's like, yeah, this will be funny to make fun of. And then we're like, wait a minute. I really expect this film to go a different direction. I expected it to be nothing more than her being over the top from the beginning and just her ramping up hardcore and her being the murderer on multiple fronts and anything that he touched. And it went vastly different direction. Yeah, I was expecting more sleepaway camp than, you know, goth camp psycho. That's that's another comparison. And yeah, it's it's so... I think I messaged you guys when I was like halfway through watching it. Where I was like, I think we need to do this. And again, it was like, it's tonally, it, it, it's very much my thing, but it was, it was as it kept going, it, it just got more and more interesting in terms of the choices they made and the sentiments of it being so well ahead of its time. I was like, Oh, I, I, I think we need to talk about this. <laughs> like not just to amuse me, <laughs> you know, which Sorry, I probably would have made that choice anyway. To watch That's why we do every movie. We all want to do the ones that are to amuse ourselves, man. We don't pick this shit based on what we think the audience wants. Well, I guess when we do, I guess when we do <laughs> polls, we are. <laughs> well, sort of, because like we're, we we reduce the polls to shit. We're still aiming at each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we spite is still our our leading motivator. <laughs> you realize our next episode is the Mangler, right? The yeah, baby. Well, we are still the Eat Shit and Die podcast. <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad everyone. Like I said, I, I was hoping everyone would get something out of this, and I'm glad that's the case. That makes me happy. Yeah, I, I was thrilled, and I'm sorry I, I couldn't be on with our wonderful guest, but I, I have listened to it before we talked, and, and it's it's a real treat. Yeah, John's great. I'm, I very much hope we can get a chance to bring him back on in the future. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm, I'm loving the shit out of Crimson Cage. So yeah, like we mentioned, if you're not reading that book, check it out. We, we've actually got a another live stream coming up with a local comic shop, which will be coming out the month after this. So we'll be announcing that on our social media, but yeah, well, Crimson Cage will probably be one of the books we talk about there. Almost certainly. But yeah, I, I don't think I have much else. You guys covered most of the stuff I've got in my notes, other than the basketball being complete fucking horse shit. No, I think I've, I've gushed plenty on this film. Um, thank you guys for, for watching this one. I, I'm glad you got some stuff out of it. And to everyone listening, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hope you've had fun with it. We've obviously had a great time, and yeah, like we mentioned, coming up soon will be our episode on The Mangler, which won the Toby Hooper poll we did on Twitter. And then after that, it's going to be right back to Nightmare on Elm Street, starting with Dream Child. But in the meantime, let us know what you thought of this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Scary Stuff Pod, on Instagram at Scary Stuff Podcast. We're on Letterboxd now at Scary Stuff Pod on Letterboxd, so come friend us on there. And yeah, we'll be back here in a few weeks with The Mangler. But in the meantime, this is Eric signing off. Thank you so much for listening. This is Nick saying, a podcast for rich kids and people with brains. Jake wouldn't fit in. (laughs) (laughs) This is Jake saying directly to Nick, hold me closer, Tiny Dancer. To our fans, everybody have a great night. We'll talk to you soon.
Night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>